this is Kim Nicolaitis with Advent Christian Voices, uh, March uh, 13th, I believe it is, Monday. And uh, I'm continuing on my uh, exposition of the, the Epistle to the Ephesians by Paul. Well, today we're on the Sword of the Spirit. Last week it was the uh, preceding component. In fact, actually what I should do, just to... Um, bring everybody up to speed is read through uh, that particular portion of scripture which i'm going to be looking at today uh, found in the uh, book of ephesians i'm going to read from the uh, english standard version chapter six um, and i'm just going to read through the whole section verses 10 and following finally be strong in the lord and in the strength of his might put on the whole armor of god that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that the words may be given to me. In opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So last week we looked at the helmet of salvation, and this week uh, we're continuing along with the sword of the spirit. Actually, all these components really go together, and uh, you can't really use one without the other. But I want to answer to the best of my ability just a few questions we all may have regarding the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. One question is, why is the word of God referred to as the sword of the spirit? Of course, the word of God is much more than just the sword of the spirit. Perhaps it would be helpful for me to spend some time elaborating on just um, the word of God itself and not assume that you are all aware of you know, what a priceless treasure God has given to us in his word. People, if people simply had an adequate uh, appreciation for the true latent value hidden in the word of God, but available to all who will but take the time and effort to search it out, we would be spending all our days doing probably nothing much more than just that. That was, in fact, true for, uh, for many people earlier in the history of our country. Most of the founding fathers, for instance, would have made any of our just about any of our religious leaders today look like neophytes for the most part when it came to the amount of time invested in its study and having an actual knowledge of its contents. But I'm going to try to keep on schedule and focus on these questions. Uh, perhaps later we can uh, look more in depth at some of the amazing attributes of the Word of God itself, such as its sufficiency, its perspicacity, that is, its clarity, its the progressive nature uh, of its revelation. And that could take some time, but it would be well worth it. So then, 
in any case, I wanted to make clear that that when we talk about the metaphor of God's word, that which is the sword of the spirit is just one of many such metaphors and similes and as such represents just one of the many roles which the word of God can and should play in our lives. And uh, perhaps the most important role uh, would be that which is stated, stated in Romans 10, 17, where it says that faith comes from hearing, <clears throat> excuse me, the word of God, because apart from faith, there's nothing really that we could ever do <clears throat> or accomplish of any lasting value, purpose, or meaning in life. And faith is simply necessary for everything. <clears throat> so faith certainly is necessary to wield the sword of the spirit. And we want to be able to, however, to do more than simply wield it. We want to be skillful in its use, certainly. As a chaplain, I would say <clears throat> at least our, be MOS qualified. That's a military, that's a, a, an acronym standing for a military occupational specialty. And that should be the MOS, the primary MOS, you might say, of every Christian. So we want to be qualified so that when the occasion occurs and it will, we can accomplish our mission here, which is, you know, to work, to continue the work of Christ in destroying the work of the evil one. So let me list some of these questions I will attempt to examine today. First, why is the word of God referred to as the sword of the spirit? And second, why is the sword of the spirit so essential as a component in our arsenal? And finally, what's necessary for the spiritual warrior? become and remain proficient in the manner in which he or she uses this particular spiritual weapon, the sword of the spirit. So the first question I mean to answer from this text is why does it refer to God's word as the sword of the spirit and what does it mean by that? So beginning with this question and trying to answer what this metaphor means, it's helpful to examine other contexts where it's used as such, Hebrew 4, Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, so that it's able to divide asunder between soul and spirit, bone and marrow, uh, discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hid before God's eyes, but we are all laid bare before him, before whom we must all give an account for ourselves. From the context there, it's... Uh, it appears that the role that God's word is playing as a, is that as a sword of judgment. That is simply of discerning the difference between what's right and what's wrong, what's good, what's evil in God's sight, and holding us accountable to the standards revealed in God's word. A sword would appear to be an appropriate uh, symbol to represent God's word here, in that the sword is what's used to enforce the law or to apply the penalty to those who violate the law, in other words, a sword is symbolic of and represents the authority behind those who are called upon to uphold and execute justice. In Romans 13, we read that we should obey the magistrate because he was not given the sword for no reason, but as a servant of God to execute justice upon those who do wrong. And he is talking there, by the way, about capital punishment. So in the spiritual realm, we may expect that there is a higher law even than any legislated by man that is the law of god and which we all now need to understand and obey or else suffer the consequences of which that is actually by the way um the law of love 
by the way. And uh, in case you're you're interested, the ultimate law that Jesus left behind and the consequences ultimately of its disobedience will be far more grave than merely the ending of our temporal lives, though the corporal punishment, or I should say through corporal punishment or capital punishment. So when Paul says it's the sword of the spirit, therefore, I believe he's referring to the spirit's function as described by Jesus in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 16, where he said that the spirit, when it comes, it will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment of sin because they don't believe in him, of righteousness because he goes to the Father, and of judgment because he, the prince of the world is judged. Now, there's basically two ways in which the Spirit will be able to accomplish that convicting work. One is simply through the lives of Christians who do not live, as might be expected, by unbelievers. They don't indulge in their revelries and debaucheries simply by seeing how Christians live, especially the love they demonstrate in their manner of life, can be used by the Holy Spirit to bring about conviction in the unbeliever's heart. In such cases, Christians are said to be living epistles uh, whose lives are seen and read by all, being perfectly transparent in all that they do. The second way in which the Holy Spirit maybe perhaps is able to bring conviction is by the application of God's word, and particularly the gospel message, which declares that all who fail to believe in Jesus are under God's condemnation already. This, I think, is one of the primary ways in which the believer is expected to use the sword of the spirit, that is simply by sharing the gospel message with unbelievers. In this regard, I want to emphasize one point in particular that is found in verse, verses 8 and 9 of uh, John 16, which describes the convicting work of the spirit. In the final judgment, a person can either go to heaven or to hell, depending solely on whether he believed in Jesus Christ or not. The Spirit tries to convince people not to reject Christ because doing so leads to condemnation. Note that the sin is singular, in uh, not the plural in verse 9. Primarily, <clears throat> primarily, the Holy Spirit doesn't convict unbelievers of all the sins they've ever committed. Rather, he concentrates on convicting them of the sin of rejecting Jesus Christ, which is consistent with the Spirit's ministry. Uh, of revealing Christ, John 3.18 says, he that believes on him, that is on Jesus, is not condemned, but he that believes not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Condemnation is the result of unbelief. Jesus said to the Jews in his, of his day, you will not come to me that you might have life. Man's problem is the sin of not believing in Christ, not nearly so much as the sins he may have committed. So Jesus also said, I said, therefore, unto you that you shall die in your sins. For if you believe that I'm not he, you shall die in your sins. So if you find yourself unable or, uh, or wanting, for instance, you know, when called upon to stand before the great white throne on judgment day, it won't simply be because of all the sins of your daily life. Rather, it will be because you rejected Jesus Christ. The issue is whether you believe in Christ as the one whom he revealed himself to be. Mark 16, 16 says, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved, but he that does not believe shall be damned. So God isn't necessarily concerning himself with keeping a record of every sin that has ever been committed because condemnation is a matter 
of sin, singular, not sins. The issue is your belief in Christ. Now, during Christ's day, thousands died by crucifixion. What makes the death of one man declared to be a criminal so significant? Why does the death of Christ on the cross grip men's hearts so that they cannot ignore Jesus? The reason is because of the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit convicts the conscience of unbelievers by using the word of God to penetrate any defenses he or she may have erected. The Spirit does this most powerfully by presenting Christ and him crucified for all to see. The sword is somewhat different from the other components of the arsenal here mentioned because most those of those other functions of those other particular components uh, are defensive in nature. So they allow the Christian to stand in the face of assaults that he or may she, she be, may be expected to be exposed to as a believer in the world that's so hostile to Christ and God and anyone who may represent them. That's what the text calls upon the believer to do, uh, to stand in the face of the schemes of the devil by putting on the whole armor of God. In fact, standing is what seems to be the primary imperative of this text mentioned here at least three times, along with holding fast. These are all defensive postures and in consideration of which we have asked ourselves a second question here as to why then is the sword included <clears throat> among the other components listed, which are primarily defensive? Well, the answer is, of course, that in addition to being used by the spirit as an offensive weapon and in tearing down strongholds and bringing every thought captive to the word of God, this sort of the spirit, the word of God can and is often used as a defensive weapon as well when necessary. And this is illustrated by our Lord when he himself was tempted by the devil. We may note in the gospel, Jesus uses the word precisely when he's being assaulted by the devil in order to fend off those attacks when he's been fasting out in the wilderness for some 40 days and nights. And the Bible tells us as well that it's good to keep the word of God hidden in your heart so that you will not sin against him. So this is an illustration of how we may use the word of God when we're tempted of the devil. We simply recite God's word and it keeps us from being distracted or getting off track. For instance, <clears throat> say, for instance, I'm watching TV or a program and I decide to, upon a selection of movies to view. And I, I always take note of, uh, you know, what's the rating? Uh, if it's filled with profanity or nudity, I simply choose to turn the channel or turn it off because I know scripture tells me in Psalm 101 that you will set nothing wicked before your eyes in order that you may walk perfectly before him with, with a perfect heart. So you see, this is the goal. The goal is perfection, which none of us, by the way, actually ever attains this side of heaven. Uh, which means that we have to keep trying. We have to keep aiming at it. We can never afford to be complacent in this battle we all face. And this has to be what is our highest priority. I think it's quite illustrative, in fact, of the ways, when you think of the ways the world uses this term to describe those programs that are particularly infantile as being adult or requiring mature audiences. You know <clears throat> what being an adult means in the world then who in their right mind would actually ever actually want to be an adult? And I know they will defend their terminology by saying, well, you have to be an adult before you are able to swallow the contents of the material without having adverse effects, supposedly, because of your maturity, if you're able to hand it, 
handle it. <clears throat> but that just goes to show that those whom they would categorize as being mature are simply those who have already lost any sensation of what it means to be alive. In other words, it means that their consciences have been seared to the point where, where uh, they just don't have any sensitivity to any moral code of decency anymore. It's as if, you know, they say because they have reached a point of maturity beyond which adverse effects are negligible, then their definition of maturity is merely synonymous with being essentially what I would call dead to uh, any meaning, purpose, or real joy in life. If I keep eating something that burns my tongue, eventually I'm not going to have any sensation left in my tongue and it's not going to bother me anymore to continue eating or drinking whatever it caused that uh, offense. But by the same token, if that happens, then I'll never have lost the ability to enjoy food at all because my taste buds will all have been dead by that time. So this is just one illustration of how we can use God's word to prevent us from being led off track by our adversary by fending off his blows whenever we hear a suggestion or an invitation to indulge ourselves in activities or put ourselves in environments that would allow such uh, things to be extended to us. Anything that would not contribute to the uh, glory, our ability really to glorify God or enjoy him, really. And it's really not, again, because God is a killjoy, but because we were made to be filled with greater joy than anything the world really has to offer us. Why drink from a polluted fountain when we can have a what's perfectly pure? There are rivers of pleasure at his right hand, and that's where I really want to be. Proverbs says we should let those who are bitter of heart drink intoxicating substances so that they may forget their misery. But it's not for kings or princes to indulge in such such stuff. So why should we? When we can enjoy eternal pleasures and joys forever more at the right hand of God the Father simply by being filled with the Spirit. <clears throat> the point is simply that by knowing and remembering what God's Word says, it's possible to avoid the traps which Satan wants to ensnare us in so that our testimony will not be compromised and so that we will not lose our credibility. That's essentially what Satan wants to do to us. But if we can stand fast by knowing the promises of, in God's word and resting in them, then our testimony will remain secure so that when the time comes, we'll be ready to be used of God as he sees fit. So far, we've looked at essentially the first two questions here. Why, why, why is the word of God referred to as the sword of the spirit? Because that's what the spirit uses to bring conviction to the hearts and consciences of the unbelievers but also to ourselves whenever we may be tempted to tolerate. And I want to get back to the point, but <clears throat> well, for now, let's look at the second one. Why is it this essential, such a, an essential component of our spiritual arsenal? I can answer that by saying, A, we can also use the gospel, by the way, in tearing down spiritual strongholds, advancing God's kingdom on earth whenever we share it with unbelievers. And we need to use God's word in our own defense against enemy attacks against us, which we can be sure uh, that we will be the targets of as long as we maintain our testimony and faith in the Lord Jesus. The final question here then is, how do we become more proficient in using the word sword of the spirit? And I think the answer to that question depends to some extent on the manner of operation we intend, whether defensive or operation. The more practice, <clears throat> whether defensive or offensive, I should say, the more practice you get, uh, the more competent, proficient you will be. 
in order to ensure that you do not get rusty in your ability to use the weapon, of course, you need to be aware of the power you're actually wielding here. And uh, I believe the power wielding in the gospel of Christ is far greater than any nuclear weapon. So that requires, in addition to being gentle as doves, you're also required to be as wise as serpents. It also helps to have someone occasionally uh, with a little more experience to work with until you feel you're able to get out there on your own and begin to see God's kingdom advance, which can be very exhilarating, even addicting in a good sense of the word. But again, it must be used with care. If the intention is primarily to gain more proficiency in using the weapon for, for, for its benefits from the standpoint of uh, protection, it affords then uh, it requires, again, gaining more familiarity with its contents. I mean, the time to put on the spiritual armor is not when you're already under attack. The time to put it on is now, although the temptation may be as long, you know, as things are going, you know, as things are going just as planned. Everything is honky-dory. There's no real pain or trouble in your life. You just coast along. But consider the reason you're enjoying such a blessedly peaceful existence for the time being is just so that you'll be able to prepare for the evil day, which is definitely coming. God is giving you this opportunity to get ready. Don't waste it. Because when the day comes and you have not prepared yourself by putting on the spiritual armor he's provided me, believe me, you'll not be able to do it in the middle of the conflict. It's not something you can just slip into. It takes time to get ready for the battle. Just like when David was offered Saul's armor to go into the battle against Goliath. He could not use it because he had never worn it. He had never tried it. The time to put on the spiritual armor of God and test it is now, not when the arrows are flying all around and the war is being waged. It takes time to get ready. Another example of its use by the way, is that of Christ out in the wilderness responding to Satan's insinuations and temptations. Christ responded with, to each attempt with a direct quotation from the book of De Deuteronomy, which had been given to the children of Israel when they were, were themselves wandering about in the desert. And what happened was that the devil gave up after a few tries for a season. He came back later. But the Bible tells us that if we resist him, he will flee from us. We're commanded, by the way, in Scripture to have an intimate knowledge of what it says. So we will be able to divide the truth right, rightly. And whenever we do that, we can enjoy the wonderful benefit of the Holy Spirit's able assistance, assuming, of course, that the reason we do so is so that we may also be in more compliance with what it says and immediately rectify any areas of our, our lives not found to be there. So how do we test the spiritual armor once we put it on? We test it by applying it to ourselves first and foremost. And we'll have plenty of opportunity to do that before we're confronted with any Goliath-sized temptations. What I mean is that we've all, uh, we all have given in to little lies. Occasionally, we've been taught about God or his word <clears throat> to some extent. That is, that's where the battle is being fought. It's being fought in the mind, five and a half inches between our two ears. So when we're talking about spiritual warfare, we are not talking about doing exorcisms or dealing with some paranormal activity or anything like that. Okay. 
we're talking about dealing with the evil that exists for the most part in our own hearts. And that evil exists for Christians. It's there for the most part because of their failure to fully believe the truth of the gospel. The devil's only real weapon, the only weapon he really has in his arsenal is to lie to you and to deceive and seduce you. For example, whenever our will yields to the temptation of blaming others or circumstances beyond our control for things we may not be happy with, it's generally because of the sin of pride in our own hearts, because we have failed to fully believe the gospel. For instance, if we're prone to fear and worry, it's because ultimately we don't think God is really in control or that he does not really care about us. If we are impatient with others, it's because we don't think that God's plan for our lives is as good as the one we have for ourselves. And because we fail to appreciate how patient God really is with us. So overcoming habits of worry and overcoming our impatience with others, those should be some things that are high on our list of priorities if we want to grow spiritually to the point where we'll be able to deal with anything more formidable in the spiritual realm. God is not going to allow us to be attested above that which we're able to deal with. So we should first concentrate on these little foxes that ruin the vineyards we would prefer to see bear fruit for God's glory, okay? And the way to do that, really, is to look at the example of Christ as the captain of our faith. He is the one which the Bible describes as the divine warrior, the one who came to deal with sin. When he came on the scene and announced himself, by the way, as the son of man, his followers thought he was going to eradicate the evil situation they found themselves in by expelling their Roman overlords and delivering them from the oppression of a Roman yoke they'd been placed, that had been placed upon their heads for so long in fulfillment of the prophecies of their long-awaited Messiah, not unlike Moses, who had been used of God to deliver the people from Israel in their previous bondage to Egypt, you may recall. However, what they failed to consider was that he was there to fully eradicate all evil, that existed, and most of it existed right in their midst, right then and there. And if he had done that at that time, he would have had to have eradicated every single person alive, okay? Therefore, he began his campaign that would ultimately overcome every single, or every, all the evil that exists in the world by overcoming evil with good and exposing it at its very source, that is, the human heart. And that's because when you try to fight evil with evil, you're really just being deceived once again by the devil into using his own tactics, and therefore you remain in bondage to his claim of authority over you, and you never really deal with your own evil within. The fact is, each of us, to the extent there remains any hint of hostility or prejudice or bias, or even just any lack of love in our hearts towards our neighbors, no matter who they are, then we have a ways to go in dealing with that evil. Just ask yourself, would you, do you really love your enemies? Do you really pray for those who persecute you? Or do you just lose it whenever you get cut off in traffic or the fellow in front of you just doesn't move as fast as you'd like? 
Because whenever that happens, you've already lost the spiritual battle that Satan is waging against you in order to keep you under his thumb. And that means that you are deficient, for one, in self-control, which is an essential fruit of the Spirit. That's a character deficiency, by the way, in the sight of God. And he may tolerate that for a while. But if you're ever going to be perfect, which is the goal, and ultimately you must know that nothing less will do, you're going to have to learn how to put on your spiritual armor. This is the battle that Jesus won when he went to the cross for us. He did that by conquering sin, not by repaying evil for evil. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might live to righteousness. And yes, he did obtain our justification for us through his atoning sacrifice. But he also at the same time modeled for us the meaning of living a righteous life in the midst of evil without allowing that evil to deter him from exemplifying the righteousness that he came to bestow upon us. And he did that, by the way, by relying on God. But guess what? As believers, we now have the very same power that was available to him when we choose to rely on God by clothing ourselves in that spiritual armor. And as such, we are without excuse when we fail to put it on. So in conclusion, why is it important to be able to use the sword of the Spirit skillfully along with prayer and all the other components in our spiritual arsenal? One reason is because whenever a person is condemned, it's because he has rejected Jesus Christ. Therefore, whenever we are to use the sword of the Spirit to advance the kingdom of God, we are in effect presenting the gospel of Christ, which is the power of God, and the only way in which God has ordained that his kingdom will be able to advance through the defenses of this world or through our own carnal natures. And how can we become more proficient in its use when using it offensively, we must focus our presentation on the gospel or of the gospel on the person and the work of Christ. It's very easy to get sidetracked by discussing specific sins as an unbeliever, which he has or has not committed and failing to emphasize that it's the sin of unbelief that condemns a man to man to hell. There are three elements to the biblical presentation of the gospel of Christ. You know, what he did, who he is, which we must identify and articulate. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He rose again from the dead for our justification. Okay, that's for advancing the gospel among unbelievers. But to the extent unbelief remains in our own hearts, we need to apply the sword daily to those areas, as the Bible says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily besets us and, or clings to us. And let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. I know I used a mixed metaphor there, and that's the one of racing, but uh, I think it applies just as well to this one of the spiritual armor. So that concludes my message for today, which is uh, the 12th, I'm sorry, I misspoke earlier, of uh, March. 
Monday with the Advent Christian Voices. Uh, this is Kim Nicolaitis signing off. See you next week.